This week on the Backtable Podcast. This radiation is an evolving field, right? I think uh, there's a lot of different ways to, to deliver radiation to the prostate. It's about how to get the delivery robust, how to get the pacing of symptoms to something you can deal with and adapt to that you know what's coming. I think it's important to recognize there's no option that has a proven, this is the best cure rate of everything and balances every side effect. It's all a trade-off. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Backtable podcast, your source for all things urology. You can find all previous episodes of our podcast on iTunes, Spotify, and at backtable.com. Now, a quick word from our sponsor. Taking out med school loans had me watching every penny. I took two buses to get to campus. During my residency, I walked 20 blocks. But since I opened a Laurel Road Link checking account when I refinanced my loans, I got a crazy low rate plus a cash bonus. And all that extra money helped me finally buy my own car. Where are we going? Anywhere we want. Laurel Road for doctors. Banking insights and benefits uniquely designed for doctors. See laurelroad.com slash doctor checking for full terms and conditions. Laurel Road is a brand of KeyBank NA member FDIC. Now, back to the show. This is Aditya Bagrodia as your host this week. And I'm very excited to introduce our guest today, Neil Desai from UT Southwestern Department of Radiation Oncology. Welcome to the show, Neil. How are you doing today? Excellent. Thanks for having me, Aditya. Wonderful to see you again. The pleasure is all mine, Neil. You know, Neil and I have a fairly significant past. We lived in the same apartment building during my fellowship and here's residency. We were thick as thieves at UT Southwestern where we overlapped for five years. And Neil, I would say, is unequivocally one of the um, brightest and finest clinicians I've ever had the pleasure of working with. It was an absolute treat during my five years. And I'm looking forward to kind of jumping into this thoughtful approach that you take to patient care. So today, just to kind of keep it focused, I thought we'd hone in on patients with unfavorable intermediate risk prostate cancer. And of course, there's like the standard definitions, Neil. Is there any variability when you think about this term? I think we all recognize the SCN and or other criteria for going through the number of risk factors, you know, primary pattern four, at least a seven disease and more than 50% positive cores. But the main, I think, distinctions nowadays are what to do with MRI-guided or MRI-targeted biopsies and how that enriches the number of biopsies yielded, as well as how to integrate MRI findings. But certainly an evolving space uh, facing many of the challenges with stage migration with imaging as any other. And do you kind of get more or less excited for patients that have 4 plus 3 equals 7 versus PSA criteria that land them into intermediate risks? So specifically a 3 plus 4 equals 7 PSA greater than 10? Yeah, I think there's certainly data that's, uh, I think, justified a higher concern for risk from primary pattern four as opposed to primary pattern three. Certainly, there's data supporting them that PSA fluctuations are highly labile, may not be as important, especially if you regard a PSA density as being maybe lower for a larger gland, and that is still is an intermediate risk factor despite that. And finally, if you look at genomic criteria for at least genomic classifiers, there's clearly a trend towards or certainly a strong correlation of higher genomic scores and risk with at least in grade group three now as compared to two. That's more so than with PSA alone. Yeah, whether real or perceived, for instance, if you take a favorable intermediate risk patient and they're three plus four equals seven with a PSA less than 10, they've slightly got my attention in a bigger way than a three plus three equals six with a PSA between 10 and 20. But we'll, we'll kind of dive into these nuances. Let's just start out with like 101. You know, so let's just say a newly diagnosed, unfavorable intermediate risk patient is coming your way. 
If they haven't been staged by the urologist, are you getting any additional staging? Yeah, we had the pleasure, as you know, working with some phenomenal uh, MRI radiologists and having high quality MRI prostate protocols. So for us, we're spoiled by getting these easily. And there's very much a exception as to which patients do not get these. Almost everyone we treat does get a multi-parametric MRI before treatment decision-making. Bone scans? Highly controversial now, right? So I think uh, and if you're elevated PSAs, well over 10, low density perhaps are still reasonable. Now with the entry of PSMA, that's also FDA approved for this space. And what to do with all these, I think it comes down to pretest probability and goes back to what you were saying before. If you see a high volume Gleason 4 plus 3 patient, I think my, my interest has peaked towards getting more imaging in those patients as compared to someone who barely meets criteria for unfavorable intermediate risk. So pretest probability by whatever normogram internally or externally you use, I think has to play a role in getting systemic staging, but certainly pelvic imaging is always done in our group. Yeah, I agree. I mean, there's some latitude, I think, even within the guidelines that, you know, axial imaging and bone scans can be considered, you know, kind of typical gray guidelines. And I like that because, you know, if it's something I'm less worried about, the MRI, which I would get in anybody unless there's a screaming contraindication, at least checks that box. Excellent. So, Maybe just kind of walk us through, you know, the kind of critical elements of the history when you're talking to a patient and kind of considering them and what options may be best for them. Yeah, I think it comes down to three main issues, right? So patient-specific factors, disease-specific factors, and then your practice patterns uh, and what your expertise at your institution will allow or logistics, perhaps. So from a patient side, I think we're always looking at urinary function, baseline urinary symptoms that are obstructive or irritative or mixed, trying to find that if that's important. Uh, that will certainly be of import to radiation therapy side effect profiles. Secondly, when it comes to a comorbidity, cardiac aspects, metabolic disorders, and interplay with hormonal therapy are important to us. Patient preferences, what do they fear most? What do they have to adapt to over the next two years? I think we can all trade stories and what we think is the best modality within radiation and between radiation and surgery and now focal therapies, but clearly patient preference of what they're able to adapt to is so important and probably more important than a lot of what we think is different between modalities. Let me pause you just real quick before we, we jump in. Erections? Yeah, I think baseline sexual potency, right? About half men have it, half men don't. You're at risk for losing that potency with any of these therapies. So have to ask, you know, how important is this to you at this stage of your life is the way I put, put it. And I think uh, that lets people talk to what they classify is a satisfactory sexual function for their life. And whether that be oral medication use or whether they're being willing to use more aggressive interventions, I think you have to flesh that out before you treat because that's certainly be a part of life for a lot of men. And what about like relative and absolute contraindications, ulcerative colitis, previous radiotherapy? Do you kind of get into the weeds on that? Certainly. Connected tissue disorders that are on systemic immune suppressants that might impair wound healing. I think certainly ulcer cries and Crohn's. I think the severity of these, uh, the amount of interventions patients have undergone before are a big part of this. I would say, you know, there's the patient with a 50-year history of Crohn's with several fistulas, which I would say is pretty darn near as close to absolute contraindications I can think of with surgery or sorry, with radiation. And then there's also then that you have the patients diagnosed 30 years ago, ulcer colitis, who had steroids once and that was it. Uh, so those, I don't think, are a absolute contraindication. Certainly, we have a discussion with the gastroenterologist firming up an actual tissue-based diagnosis of ulcer colitis or Crohn's, I think, is important uh, because a lot of things have been grouped together over time. So a good history in that regard is important. So I think historically, many urologists have felt that uh, significant lower urinary tract symptoms are a contraindication to radiation. 
I think that's a myth. I think there's good data that's dispelled that. But can you comment a bit on that, please, Neil? Yeah, I think it comes down to what kind of urinary symptoms we're talking about and also what's the trade-off, right? So I think, you know, having urinary symptoms as a part of life for most men out there to some degree. I think the the quality life scores pre and post radiation do reflect some differences in the pattern and timeline of symptoms, especially with accelerated course of radiation or more intensive course of radiation, which may be tougher on those men with severe obstructive urinary symptoms. But there's a lot of things we can do to optimize those men. Medication use, perhaps TERPs or even RASPs before or radiation. And also knowing that maybe surgery to alternative is not too much easier sometimes for these men is also important to cite. So I think certainly the vast majority of men we treat have some degree of urinary symptoms. But I think I would say there are very few men who are absolutely contraindicated for radiotherapy on a urinary symptom basis. And usually those men have issues with any modality we're talking about, in my opinion. And this kind of dovetails, but what about like prostate anatomy, median lobes and size specifically? Yeah, you know, and I, you and I have talked a lot about these median lobes and what to do, how to optimize before radiation. I think certainly though a median lobe that correlates that in terms of its hypertrophy to the, the occurrence of obstructive pattern urinary symptoms in the patient, I don't think is beyond a radiation oncologist to do a PVR or a ultrasound assessment of post-void residual in their office to get a sense of that. Dual trials of alpha blockers to see what kind of buffer you're playing with on this patient. And when they get worse, will you be able to make them satisfy with medication after radiation? I think these are critical, but a substantial median lobe hypertrophy with invagination of the bladder neck, obstructive pathology, that has to open your eyes to consideration. This patient may be a higher risk for interventions later and may want to have a discussion with the urologist before the procedure or radiation, in my opinion, if there's a risk for attention. Yeah. And so if you were to have your preference and, you know, if a patient has fairly significant lower tract symptoms, say they're on medical management, you know, Flomax and Finasteride, and they've got persistent, uh, moderate to severe lower tract symptoms, is it generally your preference to have the outlet handled pre-radiation? Good question. I think it comes down to how close are they to the, the no return point. If they have elevated residuals on max alpha blockade, that I think you're asking for badness. Uh, I think if you have, and, and so I think if you see signs of straining, out obstruction, about to go catheter dependent, if it gets worse, I think I would like that uh, addressed before radiation. This is controversial. There's no randomized data as to who's better off with a TERP before or after. Certainly you're at higher risk for urinary side effects of radiation if you've had a prior TERP. I don't know if it's any better to wait till afterwards. Certainly urologists as yourself can tell me that doing a TERP after radiation is not fun either and certainly has side effect risks. At the very least, I had to consider that these are not the men for intensified radiation approaches, such as brachytherapy boost in those men based on the urinary symptom profile. Certainly would select out those men from that, even arguably from SBRT or high dose per fraction radiation, in my, in my opinion, in those cases. Yeah, I think that's insightful. And, um, you know, there's never going to be a probably a randomized study of people with the median low, unfavorable intermediate risk, pre, post, TERP, et cetera. But I also feel that many times you actually see a clinically significant improvement in symptoms with the introduction of hormonal therapy. You know, obviously you're going to have atrophy of cancer cells ostensibly as well as benign prostate tissue. What do you think about that? Yeah, certainly I think it's worth a shot, right? So for our men with larger prostates, uh, doing side reduction hormonal therapy may be a benefit. I think it's just worth cautioning that we don't want to have a situation which we're having wishful thinking that a large medial lobe, which will probably not be sensitive to hormonal blockade, will get better with that. And I think in those cases, it, it's worth, again, I think just having a good chat about the anatomy. This is where the MRI is so helpful. And knowing what you're trying to shrink down, is it cancer in a large gland or is it just 
a massive median lobe that will not be improved by the, that feature. Now, conversely, I think as you've also well know, urinary symptoms may be worse in an irritative uh, pattern by ADT. And so I think we've seen men who get better initially, they get worse over time. And so I don't know there's a magical bullet other than saying, you know, again, post-void residual. The main thing I would say is the closest thing to absolute contraindication is indeed a high post-void residual before you go into radiation as opposed to irritative symptoms. And another, I think, myth that exists, at least in my opinion, is that there's a size cutoff which precludes you from radiation. How do you feel about that? That's correct. I think there's solid amounts of data now that size, while correlated to urinary symptoms, is not the end-all be-all if the, if the anatomy is forgiving. And we've had lots of papers now with every fractionation schedule radiation possible, externally at least, that have demonstrated equitable outcomes, provide the baseline urinary function scores are satisfactory, and there's not major obstructive pathology. I think the main caveat would be with brachytherapy or radioactive seed implants, just by the very nature of the maybe more invasive nature of the needle placements, as well as the access to the prostate behind the pubic arch, maybe more tough by the enlarged glands. I think there's only so much you can shrink a very, very large gland and still make them a brachytherapy candidate. With so many good options, I think the impetus is to make the easy play and take external radiation in those cases, as opposed to forcing a brachytherapy case. And I think most brachytherapists would agree in that regard. Perfect. So I, th I think that's quintessential, Neil Desai, super thoughtful, consideration of these factors, which clearly have an impact on patients in their lives. So we talked about comorbidities, cardiac comorbidities, and, and that dovetails quite nicely into ADT. Yes, no, duration. I think we'll get into that in a moment. Do you like a colonoscopy on everybody before you jump in there and radiate them? I do. I think if they're due for colonoscopy within one year of radiation of, of the diagnosis time point, you really want to get a colonoscopy beforehand because there have been some pretty bad horror stories of someone getting a colonoscopy and a biopsy of a radiated rectum, and that's not, you're not asking for a good outcome there. And maybe we're just fanning a myth, but I think the preventability of that outcome is so easy that I think getting a colonoscopy is just good medicine. And certainly we found quite a bit of colon cancers or substantial polyps that need addressing going into radiation. Along a lot of these men are often encountering good medicine, good medical work for the first time in their lives. It's the right thing to do, being a comprehensive oncologist for all of us. Okay, fantastic. So we talked about, I think you broke it down into three areas, which I kind of tend to too, about, you know, symptomology, lower urinary symptoms, patient-specific factors. I always think of anatomic factors as a part of it. Now, how about the cancer-specific features that you mentioned? Yeah, so I think, you know, now that we're unfavorable intermediate risk, obviously the impetus is for therapy for most men with a reasonable life expectancy. I think for these men, you know, the question still remains, what's the aggressiveness of their disease? within unfavorable intramurous category. And the main question for us radiation oncologists is the impact and benefit of antigen deprivation therapy. Obviously, no one wants to give ADT to a patient in terms of the side effects, but every study we've done, it establishes a substantial benefit in survival, reduction of metastasis. So it has to be ruled out as opposed to ruled in. There's clear data that escalating radiotherapy dose itself does not obviate the benefit of hormonal therapy in those who need it. And so the question is, how do we get a better estimate of the absolute risk you're dealing with? So as to inform the patient what their trade-off is. So if you're, you know, the, the range of metastasis risk, as you know, in unfavorable intermediate risk can range from 5% all the way up to 20%, depending on what normogram you're looking at and the constellation of features. And now we have genomic scores that are playing a role in helping us. So I think pinning down the absolute risk is supremely important of hormonal therapy selection. And of course, we can talk about radiotherapy beyond that, but that's got to be key. So in your ideal world, if you're prioritizing cancer outcomes, 
six months, four months? Do you feel strongly one way or the other? NCCN guidelines says four to six months. So there's some latitude there. Yeah, I think that's exactly right, though. I mean, the, the largest study in intermediate risk space was actually four-month hormone therapy. But the key thing there is if you're going to do assuring cortical hormone therapy, is certainly try, based on some emerging data, to ensure that you're talking about a good adjuvant phase hormonal therapy. You don't want to be four months new adjuvant and then radiation. There's at least some suggested data from Daniel Spratt, as well as other investigators that are making pretty clear that maybe new adjuvant isn't harmful, but certainly the adjuvant phase is perhaps more important for definitive radiotherapy perhaps the sealant, as it were, the DNA damage caused by radiation and inhibit repair. So I think four to six months are reasonable. The main decision-making there is usually practice pattern. And number two, is a patient hypogonadal older or at higher risk for a delayed castration time, a castration resolution time afterwards? So I think getting a baseline testosterone has to be standard of care if you're getting hormone therapy. Excellent. And you'd mentioned genomic classifiers. I mean, one that I'm quite familiar with is a decipher score. Are you pretty much routinely getting them in these patients? Yeah, of course, I have a confident interest there being involved in the study involving decipher, though not consulting for them, of course. But I certainly get decipher on anyone where there's an actual decision. If I'm fairly convinced they need hormonal therapy based upon youth and a constellation of high-risk features within unfirm intermediate risk, they will not benefit from adding decipher other than prognosis if they want it. I would say I get in a half for unfavorable intermediate risk patients because they are legitimately not sure whether they want the side effects of hormone therapy to justify the benefits. So I think it's something that I've slowly gone to do more and more just because it does seem odd to go into a case not knowing what the absolute risk is of metastasis and progression as best as we can tell. And certainly genomic stratifiers like Decipher, especially Decipher in the radiation setting, add to that information, the patient. Okay, that's helpful. And so, you know, you've made a decision that you're going to have ADT as a part of their management of their unfavorable intermediate risk prostate cancer. Generally, is there a certain time before start of radiotherapy that you like? Two weeks, four weeks, six weeks, two months? I get going basically one month before radiation and start getting going after that, mainly from a practical perspective of just let the patient get used to what hormone therapy might feel like and adapt to one set of side effects at a time. Don't bury them in this rough change to their life that they have a hard time adapting to. Uh, so that's purely practical. From a science of what's better, the Europeans have long done hormonal therapy day one irradiation. American trials under the R2G long did two to three months of neatchment. And the Canadians finally tried to address this by randomizing the two different approaches roughly and found no difference whatsoever. So if you're doing a six months of course of hormones, whether you start on day one or on day 60 of, of hormones irradiation, makes no difference. So just go based on practical considerations, patient preferences, and going back to an earlier point you made, are you looking for perhaps, perhaps for some side of reduction that might diminish some of the urinary function issues if you have obstructed urinary symptoms? Yeah. And one of the things I think that we just kind of did pragmatically, oftentimes we had patients that were receiving some type of outlet procedure, start ADT, knock out their outlet procedure, let that kind of simmer, settle out, and then generally wait at least about six weeks after the outlet procedure before radiating. Is that about still what you're doing? Yeah, and we've done certainly a lot of these. I think uh, there's handful of publications on saying wait two, three months. There's no real data that anything beyond uh, two months is really that crucial as long as the patient's recovered and hormone therapy gives you that time. So it's certainly a strong role for optimizing and hormone therapy can delay or, or temporize while you are allowed to do that and heal. I also think an important thing is just to have open lines of communication between the radiation oncologist, assuming that they're not prescribing the ADT and the urologist. That can be just a 
another step, a bit of confusion, an unnecessary delay. And, you know, honestly, I think as we kind of augment ADT with second generation antiandrogens, likely with the uh, integration of a medical oncologist and true multi-D, you know, now you're looking at potentially having three providers coordinating care. Right. And that's where I'll jump in, if that's all right. I think there's actually a very strong role for urologic oncologists here. I mean, as you know, a lot of folks in the community are doing the next generation anti-antiandrogens or receptor pathway inhibitors uh, in urologic clinics. And there just aren't enough medical oncologists to give these agents across the whole country. And rather than not have access to care with these, it is crucially important we have urologic oncologists out there able and willing and kind of prepared to give these agents alongside ADT and certainly the same for radiation oncologists, whatever the work. It's not, it's not beyond us, I don't think, as long as we do our drug monitoring. Totally. And I think there's institutional practices. You know, I recently transitioned to UC San Diego. And um, when I got here, all ADT was administered by a medical oncologist. And, you know, by all means, they're lights out with bone health and DEXA scans and, you know, all these things, vitamin D, calcium that are critically important. But having come from residency and fellowship where the urologists were kind of handling that, I was like, at least for short-term ADT, I think we're okay. And, you know, that improves access for the medical oncologist, one less visit for the patient. But, you know, as it gets more complex, you know, by all, by all means, we may need to revisit that. Fantastic. So I think, you know, just to kind of summarize, ideally within about a month or so of initiating ADT would be a good time if they're getting an, out, an outlet procedure, you know, maybe the minimum six weeks. And of course, as long as the patient's healing well, recuperating well, et cetera, that would be important. Uh, decipher testing could be nice in patients where you're trying to really sort out what the, what the risk is. And I think there's also some fairly exciting data in terms of response to ADT through Decipher. We don't have to necessarily jump into that. Okay, so the patients visited with their urologist, urologic oncologist. They've heard about surgery, and now they're, now they're here to, to meet with you. Let's just have your comprehensive spiel, if you will. So my big, I, I love coming after everyone else because I get to sit there and look great, right? So you guys have had the, the fun of doing the biopsy, the initial shock of diagnosis conversations, uh, initial follow-up questions, lots of reading done, lots of all over the place. And the boat starts becoming more stable as the patient comes to us with a little bit more information behind them, a little bit more consulting with the ones they love for and, and, and go to for advice. And we have a nice, calm conversation and tell them everything you guys said was wrong. I'm kidding, of course. But it comes down to, I think, reassuring the patient that there isn't one perfect choice, typically. You're going to have options 1A, 1B, maybe even 1C that are reasonable for you. And it comes down to what you feel most comfortable with and what you can adapt to in terms of the side effect profile, as well as the follow-up requirements. So for radiation, that's going to be, well, you're going to have to adapt to some urinary bother, frequency, urgency, nighttime waking urination issues. Bowel symptoms are still there, but perhaps now with modern radiation techniques, I think the diarrhea aspects acutely during radiation are lesser. Certainly sexual function profiles, perhaps more acute if you're getting surgery. Certainly if you're adding hormonal therapy to radiation, you're going to see these issues and being open about that discussion, what to see in the first month, second month, et cetera, is very important. And the big thing for us is having to, how do how you couch the late effects of radiation, right? So I'll say, look, all these radiation techniques, there's no clear argument for survival benefit one or the other. It's going to be about what's going to be least likely to make it so hard for you to adapt to this that your life is totally altered. And furthermore, having to consider for radiation, at least, that, yeah, maybe there's less impact up front, but you have to also consider the late impacts of cystitis or proctitis in terms of late effects of radiation injury. And so diabetics, heavy smokers have to consider this and more so try and estimate what's a higher risk for those men. 
and try and assess for them. How are you going to adapt to that concern? Is that easier for you to take urinary bother now and this small percent risk you have an injury later? Or is it easier for you to take a big hit right now and say surgery, if I'm characterizing that right, but finding out more about the PSA response perhaps and pathology and maybe needing radiation later, but having maybe less of the uh, long-term effects up front. I think just couching for them what to expect and their likelihood and need for multimodal therapy is crucially important at this first visit. Beyond that, once they get into the question, okay, this is my baseline risk. Here are my baseline risk factors for harm from therapies, obstructive urinary systems, et cetera. Now I go into the question of, okay, well, choose surgery radiation. Amongst the radiation factors, if you're going on the radiation path, there's internal or external radiation. There's brachytherapy, react seed implants that are temporary external. I'm asking you one quick question, Neil. I know how risk averse you are and you focused on complications. Let's just start out with efficacy. So, you know, for me, it's pretty straightforward. Pretty much every patient that I see, here's your age, here's your PSA, here's your primary Giesen score, here's your clinical stage, here's your percentage of positive cores. I plug it in a nomogram. I, I use the slow nomogram and, hey, the good news is the chance of you being alive in 10 years and not dead of prostate cancer is 98%. Slightly more sobering is the likelihood of you having a recurrence at five years is, you know, 30%. So just in terms of efficacy, and, you know, recognizing that there is this spectrum, right? I mean, unfavorable intermediate risk is a grouping. It's a lumping, but there's also nuances. How do you kind of say, you know, here's a likelihood of you being alive and, and not dead and not having recurred after I radiate you? Yeah, so that's a good question. And you know, we've had discussions about this. There aren't really great, perhaps, normograms uh, with radiation the same way as prostatectomy for unfavorable intermediate risk. We have we go by categories and quote uh, percentage recurrence rates. Like, well, you know, based on this trial, unfavorable intermediate risk at five years, fifteen percent recurrence rate. But having to acknowledge the stage migration, you know, and there's different imaging now. So how much of those were occult metastatic disease? So for me, I come out of the gate saying, look, we can go into numbers, but just so you know, before I start. I firmly believe there is no difference in overall survival amongst any of these modalities, whether you talk about surgery, radiation. Now, within radiation, hormones or not, is going to be the biggest predictor of whether or not you have a slightly improved better survival or not, okay? And how long you live is going to be a big factor in how important that is and how much those curves separate. So then I go next to if, you know, for you, I think you're on the lower end of unfavorable me risk. You only have one risk factor put you here. I think your recurrence rate is, you know, 10, 15% long-term. I think hormone therapy is the standard of care, but if we want to omit it, I would recommend getting a decipher score to make sure we have an absolute prediction of your metastasis risk. And I roughly tell you, whatever you get with that combined clinical genomic score, roughly the benefit of hormone therapy will be a half reduction. So if you're talking about a 5% risk metastasis, which I think is reasonably accurate from these combined models with decipher, then I do think you have a 2.5% benefit. Whereas if you're 20%, you have a 10% reduction. That's how I go based on the benefit of hormones. But otherwise, I say they're all the same cancer control and depth to cancer-wise. Yeah, I think that's important because, you know, I, I think it's, I don't want to generalize, and of course, it's urologic oncologist specific, but I sometimes feel like it's pretty easy to play in on a fear of recurrence. You know, I've heard it a thousand times, well, maybe not a thousand times, but plenty of times over the course of my training that if you get radiated and your cancer recurs, basically there's no curative options left. Whereas if you get surgery and your cancer recurs, we still have curative options. And I think that's a little overstated, honestly. And, you know, I don't mean to kind of pin you on this, but, you know, I think 10 to 15% is that a reasonable kind of 
takeaway? I mean, for a urologic audience, that's not going to necessarily comb through the radiation oncology literature that, you know, with radiation, there should be about a 80 plus percent chance that you're going to be cured. Yeah, I think for long-term PS relapses, you're going to see 15% non-fair meet risk on average numbers. And that perhaps is pessimistic, but I think we have to cite the old trials for this. I think it's easy to cite five-year data that look great. Like, oh, if you look at a lot of our recent SBRT literature, including our own institutional experience, it was 98% control at five years. But we all know that radiation failures can take many years to declare themselves, um, especially the local failures. And that if you're talking about unfair weight risk, intermediate risk cohort, you should be talking about a risk cohort that has occult lymph nodes at a significant rate. So I think 15% long-term recurrence rate after radiation is a very realistic prediction. Local recurrence, I think, is under 10% for sure. What about introductal histology? Does that kind of get your attention in any type of meaningful way? Yeah, I, I consider that high risk or high grade, essentially. And I think you have to have a real discussion about, to me, I don't think you can emit, emit hormone therapy for those gentlemen. The only big question in my mind, which I don't know any of us resolved, is what do you do with a three plus four with introductal and that's discordance between that biopsy finding and, the, and you know those two biopsy findings? Do you go beyond six months of hormonal therapy with those men? I, I don't know the answer to that question. And so I typically stick to six months of hormonal therapy. There is strong data that there are a subgroup of unfavorable intermediate risk men who clearly behave like high risk is a continuum in the end. Probably a lot of these cribiform feature, introductal feature, four plus three high volumes are those men. It's clear that at least based on one, one trial that's already been done, that extension of hormonal therapy probably improves outcome in that cohort on this study called TROG 0304 or RADAR. And it's based upon that, that we have this trial ongoing, the cooperative trial that I'm, I'm helping co-lead that amongst those men with higher genomic risk features, amongst the intermediate risk category, we're intensifying hormone therapy in those men with darolutamide. But I don't think anyone wants to extend hormone therapy, so we're sticking to six months. So I think for those men, you got to think of a way to intensify. It's certainly six months of the minimum hormone therapy in my book for those men, and probably a more intensive radiation approach would also be my gut feeling. And that's highly controversial. We haven't talked about what intensified radiation means. Oh, yeah, totally. We're about to go into the external and internal radiation here in a big way. And then finally, you know, radiographic T3 disease, does that kind of change your, your approach here? Yeah, there's, this is an area that we've long debated. I think depends on your MRI quality and the, the grossness of that extension. It's clear that suspicion for early bulge, all these kind of hedging features or early extra capsular extension are not the same as clinical palpated locally advanced disease. There are not, it's not the same as a high risk category. And I think people have been over prescribing long-term hormonal therapy based on those features. And there's a very good paper from Alfonso Gutierrez at Ituraga from Europe in which they very nicely define in a radiation cohort that those men with gross extracapsular features certainly behave like high risk. But those men with sort of bulging capsular early EPE are not the same, should be treated with six months of hormone therapy as intermediate risk. And indeed, a lot of our old trials allowed for those men to be enrolled before MRI era. And even during the MRI era, there's at least one trial that allowed those men into the intermediate risk trial. So I don't think we should overstate the need for long-term hormonal therapy for those men without gross extracapsular extension. Perfect. Okay. So we've talked a little bit about efficacy. You mentioned your cytofruct profile, counseling, a little bit of fatigue, some urinary symptoms, some bowel symptoms, generally those resolve, manageable with medications. I think digging into the weeds, I'm not sure that all radiation oncologists could differentiate between obstructive and irritative symptoms. I'm proud of you, Neil. Excellent. So now you're kind of talking about here's what options are available to you. And basically starting out with external radiation, internal radiation, 
combination. So we've made a decision about ADT. Yes, no. Okay, fantastic. Let's just have you maybe just for the sake of the urologic audience here. When when we talk about external beam radiation, obviously that's like a, a, a whole host of options, right? IMRT, hyperfractionated, ultra hyperfractionated, ultra, 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 ultra hyperfractionated. So maybe can you just kind of walk us through just the lexicon of external radiotherapy options? Yeah. So I, I think it's easiest to think of as long, intra, uh, moderate hyperfractionation or short course, five days. And I think we're seeing a continuum that you could probably, the easiest way to think of is all a continuum. And the analogy I always use is either you're going to peel off the bandaid or you're going to rip it off in terms of the trade-off of acuity of urinary symptoms in particular, as well as perhaps bowel versus the duration of the acute phase. And that's kind of how I put it. And I think that's very accurate. And that's why I say, well, if you're ready to burst and you can't, you have terrible urinary symptoms and ripping off the band-aid with the faster radiation courses with the internal break of therapy radioactive courses are perhaps tougher on you than someone who can tolerate that better. So now digging into these spectrum of, of options, on one end, I would put internal implanted radioactive seeds or brachytherapy, which can be given as permanent radioactive seeds called low dose rate brachytherapy, or as a temporary seed, which is inserted during a procedure and then taken out during that procedure at the same time called a high dose rate or temporary reactive seed. In unfavorable intermediate risk prostate cancer, it is still a matter of debate as to whether you can do those alone. I think there's enough risk for most of these men that you really should consider treating a sort of bigger margin around the prostate capsule as well as a proximal seminal vesicle at the very least. And so monotherapy with brachytherapy alone is I think debatable and patient to patients. I think for most providers, they would still argue you need to give most of these men external beam on top of it. So you're combining a lower dose of the brachytherapy seed within the prostate to boost the dose you can get within the prostate with supplemental external beam to bound half dose to treat the prostate, periprostatic areas, some of vesicle. There have been two trials that show no diff benefit there. So it's controversial, but that is an option that is considered an intensified approach with higher biochemical control by about 10, 15% in historical trials, but no difference in survival and metastasis. So again, you're trading long-term control and sleeping well at night that your PSA is not going to come back, but for a higher risk of urinary injury in particular was the historical trade-off. And that's still something to be true. And the external beam component when you're doing combined external beam plus brachy, is that 40 courses, eight weeks? Uh, no, the longest would be 25 days of external beam radiation, so roughly half the dose. And you can also just like external beam, you can give it with a more high dose per day treatment. And so you can get that as few as 16 to 15 days as well uh, in our practice. And there's some research going on is to compress that part to five days as well, but not not more than 25. Are you also radiating the nodes as a part of the uh, combined brachytherapy approach? So I, I don't classically treat the lymph nodes in unfairly intermediate risk prostate cancers because there's no solid data that improves outcomes. I think the PEP-PSMA era is going to perhaps change a little bit of this as we see more of these things that are called conventional imaging, but I don't standardly treat the pelvic nodes. You're able to, and some providers do, but I would say less than 10% of men based on the last patterns analysis I saw are getting pelvic node radiation for intermediate risk disease. So if we think about it, like maybe you want the most intensive oncologic intervention, that would be ADT plus EBRT plus brachytherapy. The pros being ostensibly best cancer control, the downside being a bit more of an intense acute phase as you're going through treatment. Is that broad strokes fair? Uh, I think the main thing that the trade-off side effect wise is the late injury risk for strictures 
and urinary uh, injury such as cystitis is higher in the combination break therapy boost group, at least based on historical data. And you can criticize that data been a lot written about this, that perhaps those rates were overstated. These are like 20 year ago therapy, but I think yes, modern contemporary series show a lower toxicity rate, late grade three urinary events, but they're still subtly higher than external beam alone. And that's the trade-off, I think probably even more so important than the acute phase alone. Yeah. And I think there's certainly some truth to it that going in and handling the outlet in somebody that's received low dose rate seed implants can be a, a fairly hectic affair for the patient with incontinence, uh, significant lower urinary symptoms. And then you, you kind of alluded to this earlier, this is going to be institution specific, right? I mean, in many places, brachytherapy is kind of considered a dying art where it's not necessarily even propagated to the next level. Is that fair? Yeah. So, I mean, everyone, everyone likes what they do best and brachytherapy is an expertise or a, at least a skill set that is not everywhere. It acquires more logistics. There's controversy over whether the benefits add biochemically are worth it from the side effect standpoint. And the less you do, the worse you get in terms of your outcomes, certainly. And so I think a lot of providers would favor external beam alone. And I think the good part of all of this is that there really is a lot of options. There really are a lot of options at this juncture that kind of spread the benefits of each approach across the continuum uh, more so than use of be. So it used to be, if you wanted the best control, you got brachytherapy boost and that was it. Okay. Arguably though, now with MRI based lesion targeting as in a large phase three randomized trial that was published last year showed you're getting similar benefits in biochemical control again with these MRI guide external beam alone approaches that maybe arrival brachytherapy boost. And so the biggest thing with brachytherapy boost is it's great if you can do it. It's great that you like it. But what if your center doesn't offer it? What if the patient's prostate is too big? What if they have obstructive urinary symptoms that are beyond an AUA IPSS score of 15, which is traditionally a relative contraindication of brachytherapy? Not everyone can get this quote unquote gold standard. So what kind of gold is it exactly for those men? And so I don't think it's a great stance nowadays to say that only one approach is the best. I think for that patient, if they have perfect urinary symptoms and want the most aggressive control, Certainly, break therapy boost is a very attractive option for them, but you're not losing out uh, nowadays with the other approaches either. And we can kind of go into that next if that's of import. Yeah. So maybe just kind of walk through here. You're kind of starting to talk about this, you know, conventional, moderately hyperfractionated, and then, um, you know, ultra hyperfractionated. So conventional's eight weeks, 40 treatments. Is that still kind of considered a gold standard? Yeah, roughly. Absolutely. You know, it's been well proven over many, many years, long-term results, good outcomes. They pin down the actual doses that get best outcomes and exactly what trade-off of side effects. Furthermore, the delivery of radiation with conventional fractionation is considered to be fairly robust across almost every practice setting and every kind of image guidance for how you actually track the prostate. So very forgiving in this regard to baseline urinary features, to practice types and expertise or comfort level, I should say, not expertise, but people different people have different comfort levels, different fractionations. With that said, there are now multiple Mars trials that have been well-conducted and shown that with better technology and better targeting of image guides in particular, we can deliver a higher dose per day or hypofractionation, meaning fewer fractions, higher dose, which can be done moderately, meaning slightly higher dose per day. So over 20 to 28 days, for instance, are many different regimens. I like 20 days if I'm doing this. And that's equitable in terms of outcome as well as side effect profiles. Again, the main difference being a little bit higher acute urinary symptoms in most studies. And then now you even have ultra hypofractionation, which refers to five day classically is what we define in the United States at least, 
or SBRT or even SABRE, different acronyms for this, but very, very short course radiation given every other day for five days. And that each, each step of the way, as you go into a shorter course of radiation with a higher dose per day, certainly the demonstrable expertise and comfort level with the alignment by imaging to the prostate and delivery radiation with a highly robust accuracy with low, low motion allowed, that needs to be demonstrated more and more. So there are very different QA requirements, physics requirements, institutional machine requirements for these things as you get more and more to it. But the good news is they all deliver equitable outcomes, just different fractionation numbers. And so it comes down to patient preference to some degree, logistics. As you know, in Dallas, well, most of the patients who come to see us are not going to get conventional fractionation. They're going to get either SBRT or moderate hypofractionation. And, you know, I think very few of them are going to opt for the longer course. So certainly practice pattern is different based on where you are. And I think just doing a good job of what you do is more important than settling on the best of this. Now, from a resource standpoint, yes, there is a lower cost and less burden resource-wise in terms of driving for patients for the shorter courses. And from a systems perspective, that's being considered, but no one can say, hey, long course is bad or moderate's the best. It's just a matter of, I think, logistics trade-off right now. And all of these are done without anesthesia. Correct. Yeah. The only thing we would do anesthesia for would be breath therapy. And then in your ultra-hypofractionated and moderately hypofractionated, are you routinely using a space ore? Correct. Another controversial feature, another area which I should declare a conflict of interest because I do have a trial that's funded by that company that makes a spacer gel as well as funding consulting there. I'm not I'm not the COI here, Neil. I'm your I'm just kinda trying to figure out how to like teach, <laughs> But it's important. Uh, teach, it's, no, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. It's a controversial that. area. It's so um I, I think look, technology's gotten really good. We wanna now improve therapeutic ratio by dialing down rectal injuries. And I think as you know, we did a trial showing this with serial endoscopies after radiation to show that, hey, you know what's better than than having radiation that's healable? or injuries that are healable, which won't be long relied upon, that you get low dose per day and the rectum will heal from this. Well, why not just prevent the injury altogether by limiting dose of rectum? That's what a rectal hydrogel spacer does. You insert it, and we do this for almost all of our patients who do not have extra prostate extension posteriorly. We strongly believe in it, particularly because we use predominantly high dose per day radiation and where we think the benefit of sparing the rectum is even higher in these men, especially because these men are going to live for many, many years and go on anthrocardiolins, and who knows what's going to happen to them later in life. The last thing they need is a rectal bleed when they're age 80 trying to manage AFib and anthrocardiolins. So we use spacers quite routinely as well as fiducial for image guidance. Perfect. Now, so when you're talking to the patient for seed implants, I mean, typically that's going to be a procedure you're in, it takes a couple of hours. And, you know, you've got your stepper and so forth. You're familiar with the anatomy, ultrasound guided, all that. And, you know, basically you have some lower tract symptoms for a week or so forth. You may require a catheter and you kind of get on with them. When you tell a patient, okay, we're about to start your radiation. So you've got your MRI in your hands. Then walk me through kind of the nitty gritty of, are you going to get your SIM? Then you're going to be coming in every day. Is it an hour? Is it three hours? Tell me just a little bit about that, just when you're kind of really getting into the weeds with the patients, if you don't mind. Yeah, I, I always say, look, for external radiation options, you're always going to have two preparatory visits. One is for the procedure, which we do under minimal sedation in our clinic in the ambulatory setting to place the gold markers, your fiducials in the prostate, as well as the spacer gel between the prostate and rectum. Then you come back about a, five days later for your mapping scans or simulation, uh, which is the second preparatory appointment. Where you do, we always do a CT and MRI. We make a mold for the patient so it conforms to the body, replicating the same position 
and perineal pressure, for instance, which can affect prostate position and stability. We have them do various maneuvers to minimize radiation dose to the bladder and rectum. For instance, having to have a comfortably full bladder to push the bladder wall away from the prostate, as well as have an empty rectum such that there's less motion in the prostate. We then do that mapping scan. We delineate the prostate. They come back for radiation roughly about a week later. If you're doing five-day radiation, you're going to do that twice a week for two and a half weeks. If you do 20-day radiation, you're going to do that five times a week uh, for four weeks. And if you do the 44-day radiation or conventional radiation, you're going to do that multi-nine-week almost radiation daily. Now, how long you're in the department each of these days for treatment? Roughly the longest are these five-day radiation appointments, which are much more precise and demanding of our setup. And those, those days are probably around 45 minutes plus for the patient. For the shorter course rate or the long course radiation with a little lower dose per day and less exacting requirements, they'll be in and out roughly at 30 to 40 minutes. The biggest nuisance I hear from these, from these men is got to be the bladder filling. <laughs> and so we are obsessed with this. We hope it benefits, but it's all about sparing the bladder from radiation. that has got to pay off hopefully in the next 15 years. So if you don't hear about image guidance to see what the bladder is doing, if you don't hear about some bladder filling protocol, that's a concern in my opinion, because even if it's not as beneficial as we all think it is, it still portends for a, you know, what kind of level of care are you paying attention to this patient's bladder and rectum long-term? And then we didn't really touch on this, something that's certainly well part of our armamentarium here in San Diego, protons. Yeah. So I think, you know, another controversial area is coming down again, how can technology help us establish our goals? How can technology to reduce injury rates and improve the therapeutic ratio? We well established that Yes, intensified radiation can improve outcomes a bit, though controversial how much it translates to survival benefit. So the rest of the therapeutic ratio benefit has to be reducing side effects. And the key question here is, what does protons get you in terms of advantage or photons? Primarily reducing the amount of low-dose exposure to your nearby organs at risk, such as the rectum and bladder. But what dictates side effects in prostate cancer radiotherapy? Is it the amount of these organs getting the low-dose spread? or the amount getting the high dose margin around the prostate. And this is the trade-off. If we believe that the low dose spread matters, then protons will be beneficial. However, no data has really re reproducibly shown that benefit. Moreover, if you extend this argument to its extreme, well, what's the best way to get low, low dose exposure down? Radioactive seed implant, brachytherapy. And yet, I mean, there's no external beam there. And yet, the side effect profiles are fairly comparable, if not a little bit worse at times, in some patients who are poor candidates. So it's pretty clear based on every analysis we've run in trials, I think that that's well-believed or at least translatable across institutions, that the main determinants of side effects from radiation externally are how much of their bladder, urethra, and rectum are getting the high-dose area. In this regard, is my personal bias and belief that photon-based radiation or proton-based radiation does not have any differential uh, benefit in that regard. In fact, I think for some time now, especially for your higher dose per day radiation treatments, the, robust, the robustness of setup and certainty where your dose is going and where the dose is falling off is clearly better with photon-based radiation. And so that's why you won't see it quite often a five-day radiation course with protons. They're still trying to iron that out in most institutions. So I don't think there's any clear benefit of protons. There are, there are ongoing efforts to define this better. It's a very large trial run by Nancy Mendenhall at University of Florida that hopefully will establish this as well as a particle trial from Harvard by Jason Asafziel. We'll see if there's a benefit. But right now, clearly no meaningful or rationale for benefit, in my opinion, over photon-based approaches. Perfect. Thanks for kind of rounding that out with a comment on that. So, you know, we've gone through radiation and as is typically the case with your patients, Neil, everything goes perfectly fine. And I always <laughs> well, tell patients this, no matter what I'm doing to them, everything's fine until it's not fine. 
What do you kind of quote as your rate of, you know, catastrophic recalcitrant radiation cystitis, fistulas? What's that kind of number that you're giving to patients? Yeah, I'm telling them five, six percent rate of significant cystitis requiring a procedure. And that probably if you ask every man we treated for years after radiation, some blood in the year and that went away on its own, probably higher, 15% or more. But the recalcitrant requiring a procedure, all comers, certainly five to six percent. And that kind of starts peaking around year two to three. And it starts diminishing over time. It never goes away, but certainly the incidence rates will go down. The prevalence rates will go down. We've had multiple trials showing that. The bowel injury rate of proctitis used to be the same number. I would argue that's under 1% now. To lose your organs would be a never event. That's, as you know, happened in my hands. I described this in the case report. We think it was contributed from my spacer gel. This should not happen. I think that's uncommon. I would almost worry more about men getting post-operation nowadays for cystitis risk. I think we appropriately started coming down and down on the dose because of that. For post-op radiation, because a nice trial in Europe showed that you don't need to go to higher doses anymore, and that'll improve the side effect profile there. But cystitis risk requiring major procedures, certainly 5-6%. Losing your bladder should be under 1%. But they do happen. It can't ignore that. Secondary cancers, furthermore, one last point, that's hotly debated based on what data set you look at. Most of our population registries show under 1%. There are a handful of studies showing just over 1% perhaps driven by your baseline risk and smoking in particular. Yeah, I think that's fair. And I'm actually not sure if there's data on this. There probably is, but it certainly seems like the kind of quote unquote radiation cystitis bladder cripples are typically post-prostatectomy salvage radiation more so than primary radiation. And for me, you know, kind of a post-prostatectomy radiation, that's going to be a long day at the office where, you know, a rectal injury is kind of a bit of a catastrophe. And, you know, for the urologist, I would just say that when they have grossing material, you got to work it up. I've seen it way too often in kind of in the community where it's treated as radiation cystitis without a cysto and so forth. And, you know, fast forward a couple of years and they've got a smoking hot bladder tumor or something along those lines. Okay. Okay. So uh, they've completed radiation. When are you typically getting your first PSAs? Uh, three months uh, after radiation for a couple of reasons. One, if they're on hormones, we'll be the first PSA we get where castration resolution timing, if it's super rapid or something's not going well with the hormone therapy, or the shot's wearing off prematurely. You want to check to make sure. Without hormonal therapy, earlier than that, you're really asking for noise. That can be very distracting. And I think letting the patient adapt, get three months out, see how the side effects play out, that's a good time to get the PSA. No more than quarterly thereafter, the first two years, every six months through year five, annually thereafter, I would say. And then Phoenix criteria for you in terms of a recurrence? Yeah. So, I mean, that's, that's how we define it research-wise, right? So it, it was defined that way because we was made to correlate to events, like clinical outcomes like metastasis and death. But we know not every recurrence will correlate to death or metastasis, but will have an impact on the patient's outcome. So yes, PSNator plus two is the definition of failure biochemically, but in the PET PSMA and Oxman era, certainly a patient with the wrong trending PSA without a good reason, such as a PSA bounce timeline or urinary flare symptoms, that patient merits, I think, an earlier workup than we have in the past. I wouldn't wait for a Nader plus two and someone who you are very convinced is on the road to progression, who you're maybe missing a window to address. And obviously, patients, I think, get hung up on the PSA. And it's a bit of a, it's a, bit of a double-edged sword, right? If you check it early where they're still castrated and it's nice and super low, that could be comforting. But then you've got to do some explaining when their testosterone recovers and it's something more normal-esque. But how do you kind of counsel patients on the bounce phenomena? A, I think I always make sure to schedule a follow-up at the nine-month mark. So as they're heading into that flare phenomenon, so this is particularly so the PSA bounce, what is it? The PSA bounce refers to a phenomenon where in about a year, year and a half, 
particularly after intensified radiation schedules such as bracket therapy or uh, SBRT. We see this more, but the PSA may fluctuate upwards for a temporary period of time before a transient resolves on its own without any intervention. And we believe that has to do with nothing in terms of the cancer. In fact, some people associate PSA balance with a better outcome, but it can be associated with urinary symptoms. So at the nine-month mark, I will see these patients to remind them there may be a PSA bounce coming. There may be urinary symptom flare coming. Find your flow match just in case it happens over the weekend, just so they're not you know, terribly anxious at nighttime or what, what's going on here. Because of course you associate it with madness if it happens on a weekend um, and you're not sure what your doc told you about that. Okay. I think that's critically important because it can be a source of a lot of anxiety. We're looking at the PSA number and certainly with, when associated with symptoms. So let's just say that, you know, they're having a failure and I'm guessing that you're probably getting some local anatomic imaging as well as metastatic survey. And there's something suspicious within the prostate. Does the type of primary radiotherapy that they received impact your desire or lack of desire to pursue a biopsy? I think the timing from the radiation probably matters more. You know, again, if it's, if it's a within the one year mark, within two years, I think doing biopsies, you're asking for an indeterminate answer and potentially a complication. And I think if you're really feeling within a year of radiation and contemporary radiation dosing, you're almost certainly talking about non-localized disease, occult meds. And so I'm not thrilled about doing biopsies on the primary unless I think we just had a marginal miss, such as seminal vesicle was underdosed. So that would be my conditional answer there. Not really radiation technique, but timing. In terms of salvageability, actionability of your biopsy, I would say, again, timing and prior dose of radiation or fractionation matters. Most of our salvage data comes from men with conventionally fractionated radiation with best outcomes, typically a PSA below 10, doubling times are slower, and usually six, seven years out from radiation in most of those studies, because that's usually a local failure. If you're significantly deviating from that path, you have to make extra sure with as much advanced imaging as possible that you're not missing a cult disease and about to salvage someone locally that will not benefit from that at all. Yeah. And, you know, one of the things that I've seen just a handful of times are early post-radiation biopsies that have led to problems like fistulas and so forth. And I actually think that transperineal biopsy would a nice be a nice part of our armamentarium to basically take that off the table. That's going to be, a, you know, a very, very small sliver of the population. But I, you know, I think when you're starting to, as you've appropriately pointed out, getting into these unique clinical scenarios, people that you're worried about, early failures, et cetera. I think you really have to be thoughtful. And, you know, one word that's kind of thrown around sometimes is radioresistant disease. Does that even mean anything to you? I mean, radiorecurrent disease certainly exists, and there's certainly men who blow through radiation, and we all feel extremely humble at that juncture. And if you haven't seen it, you're just not following your patients, clearly. You know, it's, it's tragic when we see that. I think those men are probably intermixed with just therapeutic resistant disease. If you're flying through radiation, you're probably flying through hormones. How to predict for that's a whole other question. I don't think we have any reliable marker of who's a better candidate for surgery in terms of oncologic outcome. But I think, yes, I think if you have radiorecurrent disease at earlier timelines, the idea that radiation repeat is going to secure them without hormone therapy, at least, is, is probably not a good idea. I think there's nice literature being developed, as you know, from our institution when you were here with a couple of the investigators, Rajal Shah, Ganesh Raj, that are putting out literature on this very concept of what is the phenotype of resistance. But I don't know that we really know anyone's a priori radiation resistance or, or, or a way to identify them. Clearly, some men are, right? Because that's the whole point of hormone therapy is you're overcoming resistance to, to radiation resistance. But how do you identify them? I don't know anyone's established that. Yeah. And my sense is it's going to continue to evolve. We don't need to 
take a deep dive, but I think the mechanism of cell kill with ultra hyperfractionated versus conventionally may overcome some of these historically quote unquote radio resistant players. Um, you know, we've seen it in kidney and I mean, you name your disease, it's really not the exact same modality in my opinion. Is that how you kind of think about it as well? Yeah, I think not to drink the Kool-Aid, uh, you know, we're a big uh, institution in terms of our, our institution is a big proponent of higher dose per day radiation as, as changing the fundamental biology radiation, therefore overcoming these resistance mechanisms. However, we still don't have level one data that that biology of higher dose per day will overcome resistance. It has worked in other cancers like lung cancer. So there's a precedent for this and renal cancer for that matter, uh, like you noted. Uh, but we, I think we had to prove it. And I think the only proof I have so far that higher dose per day radiation can make a fundamental difference is something called the FLAME trial, which is a large randomized phase three in which they said, you know, MRI dominant disease gets a higher dose per day radiation than the rest of the prostate. And that trial improved outcomes by about 10% to 50% biochemical control without improving, without increased side effect rate at all. So clearly MRI dominant disease, Pyrats 4 or 5, is either re more resistant or just more important to get cell kill on. And so higher dose per day, integrated boosting of that area, clearly improved outcomes. That's the strongest data I know of that hyperfractionation is cracking the nut, as it were, on some radiation resistant mechanism we don't understand. That's fantastic. And then just a practical thing. So many times patients start out their journey with a urologist and a radiation oncologist is involved. And just the kind of coordination trying to be respectful of the patient's time, make sure they're not having a lot of visits. Do you have a kind of general cadence that you take with patients and your referring urologist? Yeah, I think there's times we have urologists see us uh, or send to us and a surgeon. If there's non-operating urologist involved, I always like to make sure that they see the patient back with my note to them and a little one-liner of, hey, here's my thoughts on this. Real quick, here's my uh, best one or two options. Here's what they're thinking. And that helps, like you said, the patient just wants to know we're all talking to each other. And if you go into an appointment, they have no idea you saw your colleague the day before, that's not a good feel for them that they're getting multidisciplinary care, even if by name they are. So I think you're absolutely right at returning the patient and making sure they have time to think. I insist they do not make a decision that day or even that weekend. Having an open line of communication by my chart or electronic means is also important for follow-up, but returning them to the urologist for discussion, making sure they don't make a decision that day is important. Otherwise, I think it's just important to coordinate testing. So if you are going to order new testing, I think we all got to be on board. And I think getting that cadence down that we're not booking a patient before all the testing's done is super important. It takes literally 10 seconds to check the chart and see when the next appointment is and making sure the patient's booked to do all the testing before they see the next provider. I think that makes a big difference. And telemedicine, finally, is the last point I'll make, has made it a lot easier to do check-ins on patients as they go along this workup process. And so uh, that's made it easier to keep on top of things. I don't know what your opinion is on how that, well that works or what would help you stay on top of things when you're having patients seeing the multidisciplinary. But that's, I think, a challenge for all of us is to stay on the same uh, page and while also giving patients the earnest, uh, honest uh, opinion that they're looking for us from us. Yeah, I mean, honestly, I think early on during the acute phase, they're just kind of handling it. There may be urinary symptoms. I'd like to be a bit more involved. I think there has been some reality and humility uh, over the course of the pandemic that despite the fact that we off, that we help these patients through their cancer journey, that they've got better things to do than to spend time speaking to like eight different doctors. So I'll, I'll usually, you know, once they've completed radiation, if things are pretty good, I'll just kind of ask them in conjunction with the radiation oncologist, like we can coordinate visits and get your PSA and see, you know, you for instance, or Brent Rose or Tyler Siebert, same day 
kind of knock it out or if you want to alternate visits. But I do think it's at least worth having the conversation because the last thing you want is this urologist kind of assuming that somebody else is taking over their care. The radiation oncologist assuming that they've intervened and somebody else is taking over their care. So I've, at opposite ends, too many visits, not enough visits, but I think just coordinating it. And I mean, it's kind of kitschy as it sounds, you know, a bit of shared decision-making. You know, I think once you get a PSA with me in three months and then see Dr. Desai in six months and me back in nine months, I mean, and then, you know, as you get further on out, kind of trying to distill it down into um, something reasonable. Yeah. And I think also critically important they have someone with them or someone to listen while they're thinking and hearing. Uh, otherwise, you're right. Sometimes the the biggest tragedy is the nicest patient who wants to be respectful of everyone's time as well, doesn't think to come back and now we've done them no disser- we've done them big disservice by not following up by all being overly polite sometimes about uh, not making follow visits without giving them time to think. So assigning priorities, assigning sort of here's your homework for the next visit, give them time to think and following up in cadence and, and coordination is important. Well, this is amazing, Neil, as I knew it would be. And you know, as we kind of approach an hour, any kind of parting thoughts for the listenership? Yeah, I think, uh, you know, radiation is an evolving field, right? I think uh, there's a lot of different ways to to deliver radiation to the prostate. It's about how to get the delivery robust, how to get the pacing of symptoms, something you can deal with and adapt to that you know what's coming. I think it's important to recognize there is no option that has a proven, this is the best cure rate of everything and balances every side effect. It's all a trade-off. And I think going through gut on this is important. I think the last thing I'll leave you with is, you know, what's my vision of the future of radiation? And I think it's going to be the integration imaging into what part of the prostate gets the highest dose. And this fits well with all the focal therapy initiatives going on as well. It's clear not every part of the prostate matters as much as the other. And for us, at least, all these new adaptive technologies are really, uh, I think, coming prime time. So I think stay tuned for a sort of, a, if you want individualized care, you don't really have to look more beyond your own prostate with MRI. <laughs> uh, just make sure we're actually looking at it and integrating that decision making for treatment. So thanks for having me on. And again, always a pleasure to exchange thoughts for you how to kind of best match our treatments for our patients. Yeah. And I think if I may just offer a parting thought from my perspective is that, you know, we're on the same team here. This is really kind of understanding the patient's preferences and their priorities. And really it's, it's largely about the side effect profile, you know, the need to have, for instance, like an undetectable PSA, or I want it out versus I don't want surgery. And um, the other thing that's also become glaringly clear to me and largely due to working with you is, you know, radiation oncologist isn't a radiation oncologist isn't a radiation oncologist. You have somebody that's thoughtful. They take their time. They, they contour it. They contour it again. They know what they're doing. The quality of radiation can be highly variable. So take the time to get to know your local radiation oncologist and, you know, just like pathology, radiology, or anything else. It's uh, surgery, certainly, you know, that there is quality as is prioritized by any given provider. Well, hey, Neil, always a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, Edithia. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe, rate the podcast five stars, and share with a friend. If you have any questions or comments, DM us at underscore Backtable on Instagram, LinkedIn, or Twitter. Backtable is hosted by Aditya Bagrodia and Jose Silva. Our audio team lead is Kieran Gannon with support from Caleb Hodson and Ness Smith-Savadoff. Design and digital marketing led by Brian Schmitz. 
with support from Ishan Sangwan and Medavi Patwardhan. Social media and PR by Chi Ding. Thanks again for listening and see you next week.